Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and a good morning to all of you who are watching from the West Coast. We have a truly global audience today, so a good afternoon, good evening, and perhaps good night to all of you who are watching from different time zones. We are especially pleased to welcome the students and educators who are joining us today. My name is Darren Zook, and I'm a professor of global studies and political science at the University of California, Berkeley. It is my pleasure to be your moderator for today's event, Climate and Justice, Young Activists Speak Out. This program is brought to you by Creating Citizens, an education initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Now, here in California, we are experiencing the effects of climate change in the form of historic wildfires, persistent drought, and dramatic, even catastrophic rainfall at times. As these and other climate-related phenomenon take hold around the world, young people are becoming increasingly frustrated by the inability or unwillingness of global leaders to enact just and equitable solutions to the climate crisis. Today, I'm joined by three young activists who are at the forefront of movements to mobilize youth to take the future of our planet into their own hands. I would now like to introduce my fellow panelists. I will start with Vanessa Nakate. Vanessa grew up in Kampala, Uganda, and started her activism in December 2018 after becoming concerned about the unusually high temperatures in her country. Her new book, A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis, was released last month. Thank you to the Ken and Jacqueline Broad Foundation, by the way, for providing free copies of Vanessa's book to the students and educators who are watching today. Samir Choudhury is a Bangladeshi-American environmentalist and social entrepreneur and a freshman at Stanford University. He's the founder and executive director of Youth Climate Action Team, Inc., a global climate justice advocacy nonprofit composed of more than 1,500 youth in 22 countries. Last, we have Zaria Romero, a junior at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who is a project manager for the Sustainable Move-Out Initiative for a student group on campus. She recently returned from the COP26 UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, where she represented Climate Generation, a nonprofit that builds climate literacy and action among youth, educators, and communities. One final note before we jump into everything here, if you have a question or a comment for me or for any of our speakers today, please post it in the YouTube chat box. We'll set aside time for questions later in the program. Having said all that and having introduced everyone, let's go ahead and jump in. Now, I'd like to pose a question to start with to our panelists that goes like this. Every great journey starts with a great story. And so I'm going to start with Vanessa. And what I'd like to hear from you is, can you take us back to that moment or walk us through that moment when you became distinctly aware that climate change was something that had directly impacted your life? And also this in the same time when you thought you needed and had to do something about it. So Vanessa, can you walk us through that moment for you? Thank you so much. This was in 2018. And at that time, I was trying to find out the challenges that the people in my community and in my country were facing. 
And when I found out that the climate crisis was one of the greatest challenges that was facing the lives that was affecting the lives of so many people in my country, I was surprised. I have seen and studied about climate change in geography class, but I didn't see the education of it uh, that showed me that this was a reality of something that was happening right now, or the education that pushed me to, you know, think about what could happen in the future if nothing is done about this. So reading about all these impacts that were already unfolding in my country, the floods, the droughts, the landslides, I decided I had to do something about it. But I was scared. I was scared to go out there. I was scared to start striking. I was always very shy to, you know, stand in front of people or look at people or just be in a place where everyone is looking at me. So it it took me a while to actually start striking because I was very scared. And then this one day um, in the first week of January, it was a Saturday. I felt like it was a crisis that continued to happen and I hadn't done anything about it. So I felt this urgency in my heart to start striking, whether I was you know, feeling scared of going to the streets or not. And I ended up having my very first climate strike on Sunday, actually. And then because I felt like I had taken um, a lot of time and I hadn't started when I had found out about this challenge. So when I decided to strike, that week, I realized that Friday was already gone because these were the Fridays for future climate strikes. And I decided I would start striking on Sunday and then just follow up with the Friday strikes in the coming weeks. Thank you so much, Vanessa. I will turn next to uh, Zaria. Uh, Can you walk us through your kind of moment of personal enlightenment or personal awareness that this was a, a problem that directly impacted you and that you had to do something about it? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so for a little bit of background, like ever since I was like young, I was always like outside and like that was always my happy place. Um, and um, so when I was a junior in high school, I was scrolling through YouTube and I found this video that was titled um, Four Years of Trash in One Jar. And I was amazed by this. I was like, what the heck? How is that possible? So I like watched this video and found out that this woman um, lives a zero waste lifestyle. And I had never heard of that before. It was really interesting to me. Um, and the basic idea is to um, reuse everything you have um, with the goal of not sending any waste to landfills. Um, and that was really the moment that made me realize like, um, I just like looked around at life and like how much waste is made like every single day. And I was like, this is so unsustainable. And it's, um, I don't know, you just see like trash cans full of garbage and there's no reason for it. Like there's, uh, we can use like sustainable packaging and um, different ways um, that are reusable um, so that we can reduce this waste. And that was really the moment that I was like, um, that made me realize how unsustainable we live and that we need to change. Thank you for sharing that, Zaria. I can totally relate to that. I sometimes challenge my students. I say, try to go one day without plastic. And uh, they're all shocked at how very difficult that is. Samir, I'd like to turn uh, attention to you. And uh, could you walk us through your personal moment when you realized climate change was directly impacting you and, and why and how you decided to do something about it? Thank you, Darren. And thank you, Zaria and Vanessa, for first of all, sharing your stories. You're so inspiring. 
Um, really, my personal experiences in climate and why I do what I do really stems from my heritage. Um, I'm Bangladeshi American. My entire family originates from Bangladesh. And at a young age, um, when the first when I first heard, oh, Samir, we're going to travel across the Atlantic Ocean and visit Bangladesh, your home country, I was very excited. Um, it was an amazing trip, yes, but I had idealized it in my head as some sort of perfect utopia. It's where my parents were from. And as a young child, I idolized my parents. I heard so much about it being such a tropical area, super warm. But when I visited, I distinctly remember the first step I took outside of the airport and the ride from my, the airport to my grandmother's house. Um, I just looked out the window. I, As a kid, you like, like staring out the window, tuning out to your environment. I saw the skies were gray, cloudy, and there's a lot of smog in the air. And on top of that, the flooding crisis in Bangladesh is an extremely urgent issue. Um, I think thousands of people are getting displaced by the flooding crisis every single day. And really having the climate crisis impact me, my family, and my own um, and the community so close to my identity really humanized it for me. And change it from some issue that was on the news in headlines all over the TV to something that was a lot more tangible. And because of that, I was really forced to begin investigating climate solutions. And I began really considering climate solutions at an extremely young age, whether that be through amateur trash collection, science research um, throughout my elementary school, middle school years, to event inevitably founding youth climate action team in high school. Um, it's something that's always been at the back of my head because of those personal experiences I had at a very, very young age. Well, thank you so much for sharing that personal experience, Samir. Uh, for the next question, I have to do a little bit of personal background of my own, which is uh, three years ago, I founded at UC Berkeley a project called, um, it's called Words Over Time, and it's an intergenerational dialogue to bring together undergraduate students at UC Berkeley with persons, what are called third age learners, um, basically people from different generations, to start building a dialogue to see if there was some agreement because we, in one of the semesters, we focused exclusively on climate change because I think climate change is definitely seen as, as a generational issue, that there's that frustration that says we have these world leaders from a generation that aren't growing up with the sense of crisis that we have, and that's why they're not acting. And what I discovered was, in fact, of course, it could be Berkeley. Berkeley is something of a bubble, but the generations didn't differ much. What people of an older generation said is they said, we had that same sense of urgency but it's just over time, we lost it, that somehow other problems became larger or we couldn't sustain action over time. And so looking at this struggle as you are from, you know, you're at the starting point of this journey, I'd like to ask each of you, and I'll go in reverse order this time. I'll start with you, Samir. I'd like to ask you if you do see it as a generational issue and if you are aware of the fact that there's potential burnout or there's potential, you know, decay in the spirit of the movement, uh, what are you doing or what are you thinking of in the moment that can keep the focus on climate change, not just now, but say in 10 years as well? Samir? Yes, thank you very much. Um, I truly do think that while tackling the climate crisis, we must mobilize across generations. Um, but it's tricky because I truly believe at the end of the day that all change is catalyzed by something known as empathy. Um, I'm sure everyone understands what empathy is, but I've done a lot of work with empathy models of social change and lecturing in higher education innovation classes that if you 
are able to truly empathize with an issue, um, whether it be in business, entrepreneurship, policy, um, and climate action, you're going to be able to truly tackle it and really have that drive, that personal connection to go through with it until that issue is solved. And I think the problem that we have right now is that older generations simply can't empathize with the climate crisis because at the end of the day, the climate crisis is an issue that will impact the Gen Z, the generation of today. And I feel like we can start by um, making this a truly intergeneral approach to climate solutions by trying to mobilize um, groups um, in older demographics by helping them cultivate that empathy, whether that be by emphasizing that their grandchildren, their, their children will be directly impacted by this issue or some other mechanism that allows them to truly understand how it's impacting them, how it's impacting their own communities that they are very much a part of. Um, it's all about building that empathy, those personal connections, and expanding on those personal connections to truly drive action. Thank you for the insights, Samir. Uh, Zaria, I'll go to you next. Um, do you see this as a generational disconnect, or like Samir, do you think there's some cultivation of empathy that's in order here? Yeah, I definitely agree with Samir. Um, I think you made some really good points about um, like connecting people to the issue, and I think that may um, be why um, the youth are so tied to climate change and why we're fighting so much um, for policy change um, and action towards climate change. Um, and I also think that um, like connecting to what you were saying, like um, bringing in the older generations and like talking about like local stories of um, climate change, I think that really helps bring the community together and realize that like these things are happening in our community and like, I don't like that and we should change this. Um, and also just like learning about other people's stories. Like um, when I was at uh, the conference of the youth in um, Glasgow, um, there was a group that indigenous, a group of indigenous people from Brazil that were talking about their story of climate change. And it really was like, um, just to hear their side of the story and how um, like strongly they're being affected by it and how deeply it's affecting their communities, not only in um, like, I don't know, maybe like the crops they're cultivating, but also with their like mental health. Um, it's really like hard to hear those things and it really helps connect people to why these things matter. I'm hearing this. The spirit of connection seems to be something we need to work on here. Thank you so much for that, uh, Zaria. Vanessa, how about you? How would you, how would you address uh, or do you even see a, a generational disconnect? And if so, how would you address it? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I want to say that a, an intergenerational conversation is really needed for us to achieve climate justice. You know, the climate crisis affects all of us. And it's important to know that as much as we are organizing and mobilizing, we are not the first people, you know, to organize for climate justice. I know of an, you know, inspirational woman that I got to learn about, the uh, Professor Wangari Mathai, who did incredible work, you know, in Kenya, you know, advocating for, you know, environmental protection 
protection in Kenya, you know, through, through the planting of trees and respect of women's rights. So it's important to note that we need to have an intergenerational conversation. There is so much to learn from those who have been there before us. And then they also have a lot to learn, you know, from us. I can also give another example. There is something that um, I learned this year that I didn't know about in, you know, all the years I have lived on earth. And it was about how, you know, in my culture, um, the way that, you know, people are named according to the clans, it was the clans were, you know, for conservation of wildlife. So you find that different people belong in specific clans. For example, I belong in the elephant clan, uh, which is the Njovu clan. And it means that I cannot, you know, harm an elephant. I cannot... um, I, I live to make sure that the elephant is protected and everyone in the elephant clan is like family. So in a way, you find that there is a clan for the elephant, a clan for the lions, a clan for, you know, different uh types of fish and this is something that I learned from someone older than me so it's important that there is uh, there is a sharing of wisdom from the older generation and also a sharing of wisdom from the younger generation there is so much to learn you know from both the groups and also I want to talk about the burnout in activism activism can be very hard for so many activists it's a lot of work you know many activists have to do school have to do work and at the same time uh, do activism. So there can be burnout. I have experienced it. And I have been at a place where I felt like I couldn't strike anymore because I didn't have the strength. And I think this is why it's important for, you know, activists to prioritize their personal, you know, care, to have a personal self-care for themselves because in the end we can only better take care of the planet if we are also doing well so for the burnout i think self-care is really important for activists and also for activists to know that you know they are not alone many times when you feel like you're working on this climate issue all by yourself it can feel like a lot of work but when you know that you're different people a global movement this can help you uh, easily take some time off and rest when you know that you need to and i think that again on the issue you know of intergeneration i think it's really powerful when we all work together earth is our home and it's our responsibility and we we don't want all the responsibility to be put on the young people. We all need to work together, regardless of who we are or regardless of how old we are. And then there is something you mentioned in your you know in your question about how um, people can you know for people can stop you know paying attention to the climate problem because of uh, the arising of more problems i think that it's important for people to understand the intersection of the climate crisis and many of the challenges you know that people face be it gender equality be it eradication of poverty you realize that the climate crisis is pushing millions of people into extreme poverty keeping families uh, in poverty traps and poverty being you know transferred from generations to generations. So we cannot eradicate poverty without climate justice. We cannot achieve zero hunger without climate justice. No gender equality or peace in our communities without climate justice. So you realize that most of the challenges that we see in the world, in a way they are being exacerbated by the rising global temperatures. So that I think 
we need to create more awareness about the intersection of these challenges. And then for people to also understand the agency, I had you mentioned that, you know, in 10 years, shall we still, you know, be talking about this in 10 years? And I just really want to say that communities on the front lines of the climate crisis, they do not have 10 years to wait. The climate crisis is affecting millions of people right now in the global south. We have seen, you know, the occurrence of climate disasters. Look at the African continent, which is responsible for only 3% of global emissions. And yet we are seeing the occurrence of hurricanes, of floods, landslides, locust evasions, uh, rising water levels of lakes. So these are things that are happening right now. And the earlier we understand the urgency of this challenge, I think that it will it will help us understand that many communities do not need 10 years. They don't have 10 years to wait because that means more devastation. Thank you so much for that, Vanessa. And I, I especially relate to your point about self-care. I'm, I'm teaching a class this semester on human rights. And I say that over and over again, that you can't be a great human rights defender unless you take care of yourself as well. So I appreciate all of the insights. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. And this time I'm going to start with uh, Zaria. Uh, I know, Zaria, you and Vanessa both got back from COP26 recently, and I will say my experience with these kinds of huge conferences is that I usually show up with a great sense of hope and optimism, and usually, not always, but usually I find that kind of dissipating into a sense of frustration uh, after every day that passes after the conference. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of what your feel is, whether this was a, a conference that was filled with a lot of talk but will probably dissipate like so many others or whether you felt there was a real, you know, real sense that change had to happen and was going to happen. So Zaria, I'll start with you. Yeah. Thank you very much for your question. Um, so I actually attended conference of the youth, which um, was the youth conference before COP um, where like the main goal of it basically was to create this global youth statement from um, youth from around the world Um so I definitely felt that sense of like hopefulness and like at the first meeting that we had, it was like, we're here to get stuff done and like, um, I don't know, list our demands for what we expect to see. And I think that um, this meeting may have been a little bit different from the cop because it was right before it and we were all like, fired up to be like, this is what we want to see. Like, this is what we expect to see. Um, and I definitely left with a feeling of, um, well, I mean, two feelings, a f definitely a feeling of hopefulness because of everyone that was there and like this whole youth community that's ready to take action um, and demand action for climate justice. Um, but also that like hearing other people's stories and connecting with um, different people, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of different spaces, just like Vanessa um, was explaining um, in her answer to the last question, there are a lot of different areas um, that we need to change. And it really is this intersection of um, climate justice and climate change. You can see it throughout all the world's problems. Um, so we can't solve the rest of those problems without talking about climate change. Um, yeah, so to sum it up, um, I definitely left with a feeling of hopefulness, but also of um, 
the reality of how much work still needs to be done. Yes. There's always more work that needs to be done. Thank you so much for that, Zaria. Vanessa, how, what was your reaction to COP26? Did you have the same experience where you felt at least there was a sense of hope and you're trying to sustain that hope or reserve a different experience that you might have had? You know, um, first of all, I want to say that, you know, in the halls, there was this feeling of, you know, celebration because it felt like, you know, the people in the halls were celebrating that we were actually moving forward, you know, with all the commitments, with all the promises. And then a climate tracker shows us that we are on a 2.4 degrees pathway, you know, and this is global devastation. And this is, um, this is a death sentence for communities that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. So at the COP, I can say that we had two pathways, you know, pathways of, you know, the people in the halls saying that we were actually heading there. And then the real, you know, the real problem showing that we are on a 2.4 degree pathway. So what I can say is that there were, more empty promises, more empty phrases, and another empty conference that that disappointed so many people. Because again, the climate crisis was not treated as a crisis that is affecting the lives of the people right now. And again, this is something that I already said, but it's important for leaders to understand that commitments will not reduce CO2 emissions and promises will not reduce greenhouse gases. You know, pledges will not stop the suffering of people on the front lines of the climate crisis. Only real action will. But then we didn't see that happening. In the end, we are on a 2.4 degree pathway, which is uh, which means a global devastation for so many communities. And to also talk about the climate finance, the $100 billion that was promised, you know, for the vulnerable countries, which has again been delayed, you know, for so many uh, communities on the front lines. And then we saw that uh, no separate fund was put in place for loss and damage. Many communities are experiencing loss and damage right now. And again, these are communities that did cause the climate crisis, that have nothing to do about climate change. But again, it's it's really important for you know people to understand that when loss and damage happens, it means that communities cannot adapt to starvation. They cannot adapt to extinction. They cannot adapt to their lost cultures or lost traditions as the global temperatures rise, as the you know, weather disasters, the climate disasters continue to destroy communities and you know livelihoods. And you know, just to talk about what Zaria said, I think the hope was really in the young people. The hope was really in the people on the streets. To me, that is where I saw real hope. You know, uh, the young people who are organizing the climate strikes, you know, speaking up and continuing to demand, you know, for climate justice from the leaders. I think that was where, you know, the real hope was and the real change was. But at the conference itself, I I have nothing, you know, good, you know, to celebrate about the conference. All right. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, very insightful review of your experience. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit now. 
I, uh, I asked you for a little bit of a personal story in terms of your personal awakening. Uh, what I'd like to do now is kind of get a, get a, let you talk about what I would call a day in the life. And Samir, I'm going to start with you. So I'll ask the question this way. At UC Berkeley, don't know how things are over at Stanford, but at UC Berkeley, for many students, the biggest decision they have to make in the course of the day is, where am I going to get boba tea today? You're a CEO. You're a CEO of an organization that has people, you know, all around the world fighting this. So could you tell us, you know, a little bit more about Youth Climate Action Team, what your role is, and, you know, how you keep the fight going in a sustained manner? Before I start my answers response, I actually also do think about when I will get boba tea every day. I am addicted. Um, but it definitely is a time commitment. And I'll start by t- um, prefacing with a little bit more information about who we are and our goals and um, our organization as a whole. So um, when I was 17, I founded Youth Climate Action Team Incorporated, and we are a global 501c4 climate justice advocacy nonprofit. Um, we have over 1,500 youth organizers spanning over 22 countries, and we've reached over 300,000 people across the world. Um, we're so lucky to have been able to collaborate with the U.S. United Nations, uh, the United Nations Environment Program. Um, I was lucky enough to work right alongside Inger Anderson, their executive director, on actually our first initiative, um, where on our first initiative, we understood that with COVID um, really becoming a global issue, that our approach to tackling climate change would have to change. So alongside Inger Anderson, I organized a global conference mobilizing youth from across the world to kind of spark that discussion. And we've worked with the United States Environmental Protection Agency. I've worked with um, Administrator Michael Reagan to kind of shape environmental justice um, and energy infrastructure policy. And then um, essentially what our youth do, we do a lot of political lobbying. So working with politicians across the world to ensure that we're advocating for um, sustainable policies and policies that we think can actually make an impact while tackling the climate crisis. We have equitable climate leadership programs where for completely free, we reach out to schools across the nation, across the world to establish climate leadership and initiative building um, camps over the summer after school. And we do a lot of research. We are currently conducting the Clean America Project, which is the world's first global teen-led energy study. And what we're doing is we're quantifying the impact of renewable energy in different sites across the world and providing more transparent, hard data on the public health implications of clean energy. And we hope to lobby those um, findings to politicians to hopefully um, increase energy policy Um, prevalence across the world because it's something that has such um, beneficial impacts to public health. It quite literally will save lives. And um, beyond that, we do a lot of microgrants funding for local initiatives and a lot of other community organizing type initiatives um, and activism development. So when looking at some sort of day in my life, um, it is definitely quite busy. Um, Running an organization like this has taken up all of my time. And honestly, over the past summer where I had no responsibilities, didn't even have to be at school, um, sometimes I was working from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed. So coming into school, I definitely had my challenges where I had to manage my time, my schoolwork, um, other climate work I'm doing at Stanford, and then obviously managing YCAP, that's the acronym for Youth Climate Action Team. And I think it all comes from my team. I cannot speak more highly about them how committed everyone is, and how easy it is to delegate the work amongst ourselves. So we are split in, we have a board of directors of almost 15 directors, and each director leads 
their entire branch that has hundreds of teams in them. And I think by truly splitting it up with my um, team members and truly creating a collaborative atmosphere of other people that I truly trust, I was able to really split up the work. So at the end of the day, me, myself, that I don't have to do eight-hour days anymore um, in college and that I only have to be doing really, really administrative type affairs, whether it be doing financial type um, stuff where I need my name or um, finalizing different types of initiatives or really giving the green light on the launch of a new initiative. So to answer your question directly and summarize everything I've just said, I would say just truly being able to have an atmosphere where I was able to split up the work with everyone has really made it easy for me to manage my time. Amazing. That's, uh, you know, obviously if you're dealing with climate change, I expect to hear stories of very long days. And something tells me when I ask the same question of Zaria, she's going to tell me about long days too. So Zaria, tell us about your work with climate generation. And if you'd like to tell us if you like boba tea, since that seems to be a thing too. Zaria? Um, yeah, I love boba tea. Um, <laughs> I don't have it as often as it sounds like other people do, but, um, yeah. So, um, to, are you wondering like my work with climate generation or like my day-to-day schedule, I guess? A bit of both. I mean, it's really about, you know, the first question that I asked was kind of about, you know, that per- that moment of awakening. And now the question is, is kind of along the lines of, you know, walk us through how do you keep the, the struggle going, you know, whether it's with your work in climate generation or whether there's other things you're doing. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, I'll start with my work with climate generation. Um, so when I was a junior in high school, after I kind of um, got on, like learned about the zero waste lifestyle and like challenged myself to do that, um, I wanted to create more of an impact um, in my community. So um, I got connected with Climate Generation and um, they were leading this um, project throughout Minnesota called Youth Convening Minnesota. And um, the basic idea of it is um, different cities around Minnesota taking youth from um, or connecting with youth from those areas in those specific cities. Um, so I'm from Rochester, Minnesota. So um, we worked with a team of, um, it was me and other high school students um, in Rochester working with Climate Generation to plan this um, convening for our um, city, Rochester. Um, and basically just to collect everybody and talk about climate change climate um, change and have that conversation. Um, And the real like um, goal of it was to connect people to each other. And we incorporated um, local stories of climate change and local stores and organizations and um, like what resources we had that are um, kind of dealing, like um, working towards, um, solving climate climate change. Um, So that's how I uh, got involved with climate generation. And um, I've been working a little bit on and off um, with them. Um, Now that I'm in college, um, I am part of the student group Enactus on campus. And um, last year I established the Sustainable Move Out Project. And um, I started this project because um, during move out time in Madison, it's a big city and there's lots of students. We have, I think about 40,000 students on campus. Um, so during every move out, there's always like lots of furniture and stuff just like left on the side of the road. Like, um, I don't know, mattresses, couches, 
desks, all these things that people just put out on the side of the road to get taken to the landfill because that's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard to move. You're pretty much moving an apartment every single year. So it's hard to move these big items to each place. Um, So there ends up being a lot of waste that's sent to the landfill. And it's actually, um, I looked it up and um, each move out cycle, Madison sends over 1 million pounds of material to the landfill, um, which is a crazy amount to me. And it doesn't need to be that way because more than half the stuff that's put outside on the road is perfectly usable, especially in college where, you know, you don't always need like the nicest furniture or like you're probably only going to be using it for a few years. So that's where the idea for um, this project started. So um, we're still in the planning phases of it, but the goal is um, for next August to hold this move out sale um, where people can, um, bring their furniture to this sale and we can have kind of an exchange so that we can create more of this circular economy and, um, you know, like keep these items in the circle, the cycle of use um, so that we don't, um, um, you know, just keep buying unnecessary things and creating more waste that doesn't need to be produced. I love the idea. And actually, if you get your, uh, your, your template all worked out, if you want to reach out to the universities, get in touch with me and we'll do it at UC Berkeley as well. Happy to, happy to sponsor a move to other universities. Uh, Vanessa, <laughs> excellent. Vanessa, question for you, same question for you about your, your day-to-day kind of struggle. But I want to add something to the question for you, which is, you know, the title of your book, I find really intriguing, especially the part where you say, you would expect it to say my struggle with climate change, but it says my struggle to bring a new African voice. And what I like about it is, is you know, if you go back even to the 1980s and, 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 and onward with benefit concerts and live aid, there was always this idea that, that, that Africa was a place that, that couldn't speak for itself or had to be spoken for by others. And, you know, the title is, is, is kind of very much itself a moment of activism. It's like, there is this voice, you know, there are all these voices that need to be heard. So aside from just giving us an idea of what you do to keep the struggle going, um, can you tell us more about this, this, this struggle to bring the new African voice to the table, to the discussion of climate change? Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say that um, I'm really happy to say that we are changing that narrative and that there's so many voices on the you know African continent that are speaking up and demanding for you know climate justice and I think that um, it is time for the voices of you know people from Africa to be listened to because we are the ones at the front lines of the climate crisis we are not responsible for the climate crisis and many times uh, we find ourselves you know being left out of conversations it's hard you know to it's hard to have your voice you know amplified or listened to or platformed you know if you're from a country like mine i have faced quite a number of, you know, challenges with that, um, challenges of, you know, continuously being removed from pictures, not once or twice, or, you know, not being named. And many other activists um, 
have experienced some of these things being stopped from entering specific rooms. So it's been um, a challenge, you know, talking about the climate issues in spaces whereby few people are ready to listen, in spaces whereby few people are ready to pay attention or to platform you or to, you know, amplify your voice. And, you know, like you've said, um, society may think that, you know, someone always has, you know, to speak for us. That is not the case. I think that um, for many, many years You know, it hasn't started with us, you know, activists of this generation. I believe and know that for many years, very many African, you know, voices have been speaking up for different issues. But the question is, have you been listening? The question is, have you been amplifying? The question is, have you been platforming? So it is not, you know, a continent of missing voices or voiceless people. People have been speaking, but they are not being heard. They have not been heard, you know, not just in this period of time, but for so many years. And of course, like I've said, we are changing that, you know. We want the world to understand that we can speak up for ourselves. And we want the world to understand that we understand the challenges, you know, that are going on in our communities. It doesn't, you know, make sense for, you know, someone to talk about a climate crisis, you know, in a specific African continent without hearing the voices or the stories of the people in those communities. It also doesn't make sense to, you know, determine climate solutions for specific communities on the African continent, again, without... um, seeking you know for wisdom or knowledge from the communities yeah from the people in those communities so i think that it's time for people to understand that uh, many voices from africa are speaking out they've been speaking out and they're demanding for climate justice and they know the climate solutions that work for their communities so it is time to platform because every activist has a story to tell and every story has a solution to give and every solution has a life to change. So we will only have climate justice if every voice is included, especially voices on the front lines of you know, uh, the climate crisis. And also to pay attention to the climate solutions. Climate solutions need to come from the people on the front lines. And just my, you know, my daily way of life um i think it is almost the same with uh samira and zaria and it's mainly around organizing and you know mobilizing uh for the next climate strikes or for the next um uh, global climate strike or school reach outs or community reach outs and definitely getting enough sleep i should say yeah Yes, I'm hearing the common theme that all three of you don't get enough sleep. Uh, so um, such a great point. I, I can't agree with you more about the idea there's so many eloquent voices sending a message and half of the activism is getting the world to listen. So thank you for that insight. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit here. I'm going to uh, cue up a video. We're going to hear now from Anna Alanis. Anna works in the development department of the Commonwealth Club. She experienced the climate crisis firsthand when her family home burned in a wildfire. So 
we have that video ready to go for you. Hello, my name is Ana Lilia Alanis and I'm 25 years old. I am deeply inspired by today's panel and I'm honored to have the opportunity to share a bit of my own climate story before kicking off the Q&A section with our panelists. I grew up in a working class family and was raised in Coffee Creek, a small rural town in Northern California nestled in the Trinity Alps wilderness. Like so many places across the American West and throughout the world, my community has been increasingly threatened by wildfires that are exasperated by our changing global climate. Three months ago, we were warned that a looming wildfire was suddenly barreling down Coffee Creek Road towards our home. That night, half of my town and my family home of almost 20 years burned in a wildfire. That loss alone brings me to my knees. But then Coffee Creek was hit by storms intensified by our warmer climate and the massive amounts of rainfall caused flooding that took out our roads and destroyed my neighbor's homes that had survived the fire. It's too late to save my home and I will grieve that loss for the rest of my life. But there are countless communities and ecosystems that we can still save from the worst impacts of climate change. And the need for climate justice is urgent and the movement needs all of us. With that, I'd like to shift now into thinking about how we care for ourselves in the midst of the climate crisis, how we find hope, joy, and comfort. To care for myself and sustain my own activism, I cook and I cook really good food. It's good for me and that I really enjoy the food and it makes me feel connected to the earth. My food is plant forward, flavorful and nutritious. And to the best of my ability, I'm using ingredients that are sustainably sourced, produced, local and are harmless to the animals and humans who power our food systems. With that, I'd like to turn back now to our panelists. Thank you for the work that you do in the climate justice movement and for inspiring so many of us to take and sustain action. My question for you all now is how do you replenish and care for yourselves so that you can continue showing up in the fight for climate justice? All right, what an excellent question since self-care already came up once before. So before we jump into other audience questions, uh, aside from boba tea, I guess I forgot, Vanessa, to ask you if you liked boba tea, but uh, give us an example of, of you know, because everyone... Everyone knows that struggle is exhausting. So give us an idea. Give us one thing that you do that uh, helps keep you going. What, what's your self-care thing, your go-to self-care thing? Uh, I'll start with you, Samir. Yeah, honestly, I feel like um, the biggest thing that gives me joy um, is just being around people that I love, whether that be my family, my friends. And they make my life in climate activism so easy because a lot of the times I'm working with them. I'm working with people who I'm really, really close friends with. And that in itself, I find to be very, um, it allows me to preserve my energy and prevent burnout. Um, I would say apart from that, I think the biggest thing that I do outside of um, climate activism is spending time with friends that really helps me um, take care of myself. Because as Vanessa said earlier, if we aren't taking care of ourselves the movement isn't there because we are the movement. So it's definitely just taking a break from the day and working out, um, whether that be going on a run, um, riding my bike throughout the various trails um, in the D.C. and California regions, or um, going for a nice swim. Those are always really nice um, methods that I try to implement in my daily life to keep myself fit, but then also um, give myself a mental break from um, just all my work that I have to do. All right. Excellent. Zaria, any any tips or insights or when you want to share anything you want to share about how you keep yourself going, rejuvenate? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so my favorite things to do to rejuvenate and I guess for self-care um, is either like yoga or meditation. Um, I find those to be like very healing and it also brings in like some exercise, moving your body. Um, or also another thing um, I love to do when I have time is to just like go for a walk outside um, and enjoy the nature and the um, space that you have. Because I think a lot of you know, like when you're learning about climate change and about the ways it's affecting different communities, it can weigh like a lot on you. And um, it, I don't know, it's really hard sometimes. Um, so I think just being present and enjoying like hearing the birds chirp or seeing, um, you know, the leaves of a tree like blow in the wind those are really like um i like focusing on those things like in the present and just finding the beauty in those too well said i like i said i often advise my students to do the same thing i, I sometimes challenge my students to also go a day without social media and they come back with great comments like i actually heard birds singing for the first time it's like yes it's everywhere uh vanessa how about you and do feel free Vanessa, if you like boba tea you can say so but if you have another drink that really rejuvenates you that's fine too but give us an example of how you participate in kind of self-care to make sure that you keep your energy levels up um first i haven't had it before so i don't even know how it looks like <laughs> yeah um but uh personally i love i love to be by myself a lot um especially if i'm not doing activism and i just love to be in my room literally most of the day if I'm not doing anything I just love to be in my room because when I am alone I you know I get to sleep when I want to and uh, I love sleep a lot I think it's really important um, especially when you're doing activism and then um, when I'm alone I I love to pray and I love to listen to worship music I, um, it really gives me um, a lot of strength. And sometimes I love to watch a movie. Yeah, I think those are the things that I really love to do. Yeah. All right, excellent. Music is my thing too. I love to play music. And, and Vanessa, if you're ever in Berkeley, let me know because I'll be happy to buy you a boba tea so you can experience it. Uh, and note that I say buy you a boba tea because I will not buy one for myself because I'm not a fan of boba tea. So <laughs> there you have it. All right, got two questions coming down. I'll ask the first one and I'll start, uh, in this case, I'll start with you again, Vanessa, which is, you know, we think of activism about breaking through and, and, and you know, creating change, which is what it is, but it's also kind of pushing against or helping to, to you know, shift the perspectives of people who are actually against you. So I think all three of you, I'm sure, have experienced people who give you pushback. So can you give us an idea of, of who questions what you're doing and who gives you pushback and, and how you deal with the people who may oppose the message you're trying to bring? So Vanessa, I'll start with you. Well, um, you know, I can start, first of all, by giving an example. Um, while I was um, in Glasgow, I happened to speak at one of the, you know, climate strikes. And, you know, in one of the speeches, I talked about how uh, the climate crisis was impacting um, the lives of so many people in my country, especially in the rural areas, and how uh, people's farms were being destroyed, and how this in the end was affecting education of girls, you know, and exacerbating the risks of early marriages for girls and, you know, just dropping out of school. And 
I also talked about how, you know, many people, you know, end up losing their lives in the cases of, you know, landslides or, you know, floods, you know, in certain parts of my country. And then um, there is this, you know, um, media outlet in my country, you know, and they just put, uh, you know, a sudden kind of headline um, basing on, you know, on my speech. And of course, it's kind of a twisted kind of headline. And, you know, they're all, you know, these comments from so many different people, you know, from my country, and many of them, very young, young people, uh, most of them are age mates or are younger or slightly older. And most of the comments were, you know, saying that, I was lying about the climate crisis. And then, so it was like, a, it was like um, a mixture of two, you know, two reactions. People who are saying, no, you're lying. And people who are saying, but she's not lying, you know, and pro- giving all these, you know, different news that have been, um, that have been, produce i don't know if what i can use but different news that has been brought out showing uh, how the climate disasters have been you know happening uh, how some schools have been submerged how some hospitals have you know been affected how you know girls have been affected so it was to me what it showed me was that there was a lot of you know you know lack of knowledge about the climate crisis and i was trying to understand uh, many of these people from that place of I was, you know, once in that place before where I didn't understand um, the reality of the climate crisis and how much it was affecting the lives of so many people in my country. So I think that uh, one of the biggest challenges that I have seen in activism, you know, is people not knowing that what you're saying is actually real and what is happening because, First of all, maybe this is not something that is being taught in schools or this is not something that is really being highlighted by the media for people to learn. So I think that more climate you know, awareness needs to be created for people to understand that you know, when you're safe in your home, it doesn't mean that everyone else is safe. For people to understand that when you're going to school, it doesn't mean that every child you know, is going to school. So when things are going on well for you, it doesn't mean that everything is fine all of a sudden you know, for everyone else. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that insight, Vanessa. I'll go next to uh, Zaria. Um, Can you give us an idea of are there people who are opposing what you're trying to do or undermining your efforts or what kind of opposition you get and and how do you engage with it or how do you work through it? Yeah. um, So I think I've actually been lucky. I feel like I haven't had um, much pushback or like people saying like um, what I'm doing isn't... um, I don't know, going to be helpful or that climate change isn't real. Um, And um, but I guess some things I have seen is that like, um, I don't know, just this idea that like it's hard. It's going to be hard to um, change other people's perspectives and opinions because if they don't understand climate change. And um, I think what I would say to that is, um, bringing it back to like empathy and connection. Like, I think these are really going to be the things that help people understand the severity of um, this climate crisis and that um, will help bring those people into the conversation and help them realize um, 
you know, all the things that um, we need to do. And another thing um, um, is that I think a lot of people don't realize how many um, services that the environment actually gives us. And um, like one thing we've been learning about in classes is um, like exactly what those are and even like monetarily like quantifying those numbers, which um, I guess appeals to, you know, some people that say like, why does this matter? Why should we take care of the environment? Like that's a reason why, um, because it provides us all these services that we don't even think about. Thank you, Zaria. Uh, Samir, any personal examples? Anyone try anybody, or how do you deal with climate change deniers? Or has anybody questioned the, you know, whether we need an organization like yours? How do you deal with it? Yeah, there are definitely been times when, unfortunately, decision makers haven't really advocated for the policies that I really would want to see implemented. Um, I think a key example of this is some of the work I did with Sunrise Movement, which is a massive nationwide climate justice organizing um, nonprofit in the United States. Um, I did a lot of work around their civilian climate core policy, which is a visionary policy that would create a new government jobs program, putting a new generation of Americans to work combating the climate crisis. And I actually flew to California at the time I was in the D.C. area. That's where I originally am from. And over last summer, I flew to California to speak and help organize one of their um, massive mobilizations around that policy. And I feel like when it comes to decision makers not advocating for the policy we want or us not seeing the action we want, again, it all stems back to cultivating the empathy um, around the issue and how that manifested itself in the work I did with the Civilian Climate Corps was during this rally that we had um, right outside on the front doorsteps of a California decision maker's home, we all began sharing our stories um, with a massive crowd, a massive audience on how the climate crisis really impacted us. And there's a lot of similar stories with the one shared earlier of how wildfires really scorched California, burned down a lot of homes. And I was fortunate enough to share my own experiences um, being Bangladeshi American and coming from an, a region of the world that is so um, directly impacted by the climate crisis. So I think um, it's all about really humanizing the climate crisis by sharing and connecting personal experiences. Um, I think that's our best approach to combating climate inaction, climate denialism, and seeing the policies that we want to see in the world. All right. Excellent. Thank you for the response and the insights. I would like to, uh, I'm going to try to do this I'm, I'm taking about 10 audience questions and transforming them into one. There's a lot of questions about using the word accountability and politicization. And the, 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 the perspective of most of these questions is, number one, this has become so politicized because policymakers end up trying to take over the dialogue. And at the same time, we can't seem to hold political leaders or countries accountable. Now, this is going to be kind of an impossible task. And, and Zari, I'm going to start with you, which is... We're also getting towards the end of our, our time here. Can you quite concisely say if you have any insights on how we can hold policymakers, politicians, or whole countries accountable for the contributions, the negative contributions they make to climate issues? Zarya? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a very big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess what I would say to that is... Um, I don't know if there's a way to personally get in contact with policymakers, like whoever you have access to, I guess, even um, 
like someone local in your community, like a mayor or, um, I don't know, a senator or someone like try to make those connections and really talk with those people. Um, and I think that's a way um, to hold people accountable and also like band together with other people that um, feel the same things um, as you do about climate change and um, the need for action. Um, and like when leaders see that so many of um, their community is concerned about and devoted to this issue, um, I think that's a way to um, hold them accountable um, and also just keep demanding action. If like you're not seeing what you want to see, um, keep telling them that things need to change. Um, and one other thing that I'll say is that um, I think a lot of the focus, um, you know, and I thought this too, like most, the most change is going to come from government policy, national policy, global policy. And I think that's true. But um, at this point, like it takes a lot of time to make those policies and to create those laws and especially getting that passed. So I think that what's really important to focus on is the things that you can do in your local community and start there um, because those are things that you can change right now. And, um, you know, we need climate action right now. So while we should still demand action from, um, you know, national and global levels, we should really be focusing on the things that we can do personally, um, whether that be, I don't know, starting a company or, demanding change from your local um, stores and um, what you expect to see. Yes, people often forget that the fight is as local as it is global. Um, Vanessa, I know this is a large question and I'm asking you to be concise and also giving you a large question, but how would you address the issue of accountability or lack thereof among the people that are in power, that have the power to affect change? How do you address that issue, Vanessa? Well, um, I think that uh, one of the things that I've got to see from leaders or the people in power is that uh, through their speeches or, you know, through everything they say, uh, there is so much that is promised. And, you know, there is so much of all these promises of a future of, you know, another world being possible. And then the actions that are followed after those promises, they do not really reflect on uh, the words that, you know, are being continuously said by leaders or generally people in power. And I think one of the ways that um, we can hold them accountable is to mind the gap between their promises and their actions. Because many times um, we may get really excited about, you know, the promises of, you know, a sustainable world, the promises of a healthier planet. And then we forget to follow up on, you know, the actions. Again, uh, actions will be the ones that, you know, will stop the warming of the planet and the suffering of the people. It won't be promises. So it doesn't just end on promises or commitments or pledges. This has to be followed by actions for us to see that actually something is changing. So I think one of the ways is to really mind the gap between the promises and the actions of the leaders and the people in power. 
Thank you, Vanessa, uh, for, for your response there. Now, amazingly, we have reached the point in the program where I am going to put out one last question. Uh, an hour has flown by. Uh, members of the audience, I, I greatly appreciate all the questions. This is obviously a conversation we're going to have to keep going in the future. But for now, to wrap things up, I'd like to give each of you, each of the speakers, uh, one last question. The question is a big question, but I'll ask you to be concise. But the question looks like this. If you could say one thing, to young people who want to make a difference in the fight for climate justice, what would be the one thing you would say to them? And I'll start with you, Samir. If I could say one thing, it would be think globally, but act locally. Um, like Zarya said before, um, change really comes by at a grassroots level within our own communities. And this is a global crisis, and it comes by holding our decision makers accountable. I know there's just a lot of dialogue about that. That means vote. Pick up the phone. Give them a call. Um, tell them what you want to see enacted in policy. Write them a letter because at the end of the day, these decision makers are supposed to represent us. And I think if we think act, think globally, act locally, we can definitely take take a step towards tackling the climate crisis. All right. Well said. Zaria, I'll go to you next. If there's one thing you could say, what would it be? Yeah. Um, so what I want to say is that your imperfect efforts to fight for climate justice are perfect and you just need to, um, you know, just try. And that is going to be perfect. Um, also, stay hopeful and know that there is a large community of people in the world that support you and are here to help you. All right. Thank you, Zaria. Uh, Vanessa, would you like to add to this? If there's one thing you could say to the youth activists of the world to keep the fight going, what would it be? Well, I think that that would be um, something from a place of faith and that would be believing in yourself as someone who, you know, can be able to do something that can transform the world. And, you know, in simple, in a simple way to say it is that for young people to believe in the power of their voices and for young people to believe in the power of their actions, no one is too small to make a difference. No voice is too small to make a difference and no action is too small to transform the world. So I think that uh, believing in ourselves and also believing that, you know, another world is possible is something that I would tell, you know, any young person who is doing activism or who wants to do activism. Thank you so much for that. Um, and now is the time when I have to give a huge and sincere heartfelt thanks to our three speakers, Samir Chaudhary, Vanessa Nakate, and Zario Romero, for all of your insights today, for sharing your climate stories and the vitally important work you're doing to address climate injustice and inspire young activists around the world. I think I can speak for everyone here today, including myself, that we will leave this program feeling more hopeful and inspired than we did when the day started. The Commonwealth Club will soon be posting the video of today's conversation to their website to watch the video and support the Commonwealth Club and their educational initiative, Creating Citizens. Please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Darren Zook. Thank you so much for joining us online at the Commonwealth Club today. Onward into the day we go. Take good care, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.